0: For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive.
2: Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Andrew DeAngelo. As most people know, Andrew or his background in his work, he's been an activist. He's been an advisor, a consultant really has a long time person inside the cannabis industry in multifaceted. And we're going to talk a little bit about his background, but certainly focus on what he's doing today. And obviously a lot of experience, a lot of perspective on where the cannabis industry is going. So I'm excited to have this conversation and kind of hear from someone who's been doing this for a while. So with
3: that, Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bruce. It's nice to be with you today.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Let's do it just a little bit of background for those, you know, for the handful of people that, that kind of don't know you in general, but give us a little bit of the story, because I know you've been involved in cannabis. For a long time. You've you've had many different roles. You've been involved in lots of different both organizations, businesses, movements. Give us a little bit of your story. Give people some context of how you've come to what you're doing today.
3: Sure, I'd love to. Most of your listeners may be more familiar with my older brother, Steve D'Angelo. Steve and I As teenagers, both fell in love with cannabis. Steve is 10 years older than I am. So I had the benefit of having my older brother as a guide in those early years. And, you know, we fell in love with cannabis at a time that was a pretty dark time for cannabis. Yeah. And it was very risky to be working with the plant the way we were. We were trading in cannabis and Mm -hmm. it was also risky to be an activist and try to change the laws. And so we decided to commit to those risks and do that work. And, you know, eventually we were able to change uh, laws first for medical cannabis and then for adult use cannabis. And we were able to take our cannabis trading from an illicit market into a legal market first with the gray market. I'd call gray market, which would be the medical market in California. When we opened Harborside in 06, mm-hmm. uh, we opened Harborside. And Harborside is a vertically integrated cannabis company now publicly traded on the Canadian Stock Exchange. So we've come a long way since those yeah. ver- since those early days. But you know, now we were able to legalize for adults in in California a few years ago, and and you know, the entire cannabis industry is both in a moment of great promise but we're also at a moment of great crossroads as we've seen legalizations and the frameworks for it have not worked very well for yeah. a, a lot of different stakeholders and and so now our task really is to is to fix the frameworks and you know i've spent a, a quite a few years doing that work uh, on the public policy Side, I'm a little burnt out on the public policy yeah, side sure. in California, so Taste now I'm soul. trying to just go around it and do things in the private sector or the nonprofit sector with Last Prisoner Project. I know we'll talk more about that, but um, yeah. you know, we have to go around the bad public policy right now because I don't see the public policy getting good anytime soon. We're going to have this whole incremental change movie that we're going to have to get good at directing and acting in but it's incremental and the change we need on public policy is bold it's not incremental so so in the private sector we can figure out solutions right and a lot of times when you're talking about social equity people or you're talking about legacy people like me that have been doing this for a long time that perhaps are not you know Finance people, or or people that are high net worth individuals, and we don't have those skills and we don't have that background, but we're starting to make relationships with people that do Mm -hmm. um, and just come together as our own community. The legacy, I'm starting to see legacy folks um, collaborate with black owned and social equity folks to form Mm -hmm. stronger bonds and stronger organizations. And I think that's, and I'm very hopeful. I'm seeing solutions. I'm seeing, you know, more black owned companies in the market. I'm seeing more legacy people here in California go from the illicit to the legal. And that's the work I'm really interested in doing. And on the nonprofit side, you know, we're getting people out of prison for cannabis. That should have never been locked up in the first place. So, so sometimes you have to step away from policy, let some other leaders and activists take the lead and the charge, doing that incremental work. And I think I can probably influence that work from the outside a little bit better than I can from the inside. Yeah, I'm curious,
2: just kind of you know looking back over you know the the, the time that you've been involved in this. I mean, in, in terms of today. What are two or three things that you think we've got right as an industry and what are two or three things that you think are are most wrong in terms of how things have played out?
3: Well, that's a great question. The thing we've gotten right is, and this is mainly due to activists, but a lot of times activists have collaborated with funders. Okay, Mm -hmm. otherwise known as the suits, (laughs) Um, and the activists, otherwise known as the stoners. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually getting ready to write about the stoners and the suits coming together. But in any case, um, um, the stoners and the activists um, have done a great job changing the law. And the suits have done a great job getting the industry financed enough to at least... Be where we are now. Um, it's, it's been enormously difficult to finance the industry, even though we're barely up. We're, we're on our knees, you know. And, yeah. But to get from the grave to our knees, that's a huge, huge thing. People don't realize how incredibly hard that is. And the suits lost a lot of money, and they made a lot of sacrifices, not as much as the activists and the legacy yeah. people have, but but certainly it's there and and what's what's heartening about the stoners in the suits and, and what I'm gonna write about Bruce is that we have common adversaries. These high taxes are hurting both of us. these, these yeah. outrageous regulations that are absurd and make no sense whatsoever are hurting, Both of us, the local control and the nimbyism preventing cannabis retail from wide distribution in Canada and California and all these other places other than Oklahoma. (laughs) Um, God bless the Republicans. Once they decide to do something, by golly, it's everywhere. And the Democrats need to learn from that. Yeah. Uh, let's give credit where credit is due. Mm-hmm. So we can unite to overcome these common adversaries. And in that uniting, in that working together, I think we'll get to know each other, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and this is, could be a model for the rest of uh, America because I think when it comes to the stoners in the suits, we feel a lot more divided and uncommon than we really are. And I think that's sort of true with the larger society. These yeah. feelings of division are actually largely a mirage, 80, 90 percent of it. And, you know, one of the things the pandemic opened my eyes to is, you know, you've got these Zoom calls and I'm having Zoom calls with high net worth individuals and their fancy Houses and I'm having Uh Zoom calls with social equity people, you know, in little tiny studio apartments, you know. And you know what? Everybody is sitting at a desk in their office, and the office might be fancy or it might be rustic, but it's still an office and it's still Uh a desk and it's still a human being and it's the same. Yeah. Um, It's exactly, we live the same. The only thing that's different is the accessories. But we live the same. And so the stoners and the suits live the same too. And so this division I'd really like to, to help bridge. Um, people. Yeah. So that's that's sort of a long-winded way of answering yeah, like it. it. I like it. it. Because
2: I think it is, cannabis is complicated, right? And it's complicated for lots of different reasons, you know, business-wise, medical-wise, you know, but socially and politically, it's you know, it's fraught with history, it's fraught with, unfortunately, with with stigma, and we're still working through all those things. So yeah, so at, at one level, I certainly have looked at it and have been very frustrated at times and think, why can't we get farther? On the other hand, you know, we declared essential service during a pandemic, right? So there's some, you know, there is, there's special definitely some progress been made
3: yeah there's two sides of the same coin and and you know so so i think the activists done a great job with legalization i think the finance and the suits have done a great job getting us this far we need to build some bridges some more bridges yeah. between those those two groups we need to get people of color and social equity folks their rightful place in yeah. the industry and we're gonna have to really take that seriously you know And not just show up at a conference and talk about it or go to a demonstration. You know, the rubber's going to hit the road. And people that look like me and look like you are going to have to make sacrifices in in order to make that happen. So I hope we're ready to do that. I'm ready to do that. and I hope everybody else is too. So yeah. so looking forward, you know, we need to create more access. So we got to somehow overcome this local control NIMBYism, uh, because without wide access, the whole supply chain's just effed. You just can't build a, a functional supply chain, especially if you have to build one in every state, which is Totally what what we're we're doing doing. (laughs) is completely redundant and totally inefficient, right? Um, But if you have to do that, if we're so fearful of cannabis that we're not going to legalize at the federal level, then we need to create wide access. And then the other thing we need to do, that's at the retail level, right? But all the way up at the farm level, what we need to do is create interstate compacts. And there's a great group that, that's working on on that right now.
2: And let's see, I got to look up the name of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm going to blank on it as well. I know they're, particularly it's up in the Northeast, right? They're, they're trying to create uh, the ability to ship product across the state lines without running into problems.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a great organization. I don't I'll, look sp- them. I'll
2: look them up and I'll put them in the show notes if we can't find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. yeah, yeah. They're in here somewhere. <laughs> sensible. Oh, it's sensible something. But, um, in any case, we have to have interstate compacts. Okay. Yeah. Once we have interstate compacts and they're legal, okay, you can have an interstate compact. There's interstate compacts for all kinds of things. It's called Alliance for Sensible Markets, sensiblemarkets.org. So that is up. where you can go to support this idea of interstate compacts. And interstate compacts are really important. All we have to do, Oregon already passed an interstate compact, and Oregon is out there waving their arms.
2: Please, yeah.
3: You're begging another state to join them. And I tried to get it done with California and CCIA, the California Cannabis Industry Association, is still trying to get that done. We haven't been able to get the bill passed in the legislature. Um, But, um, you know, a place like Illinois or or Massachusetts, they could use some Oregon or California weed. And Mm -hmm. we ought to have some interstate compacts in between. Illinois, Massachusetts, California, Oregon. And if we did that, it would put a huge challenge to the feds because as yeah. soon as you have an interstate compact, the way the law works is the Congress has to approve it. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah,
2: man. So it's really it's, – it's a way to force federal federal legalization or at least de- decriminalization.
3: It's, it's like this whole incremental change thing. You yeah. know, we have to learn how to, like, stack it. And Adam Smith, who is running the sensiblemarkets.org, Adam Smith is actually related to Adam Smith. No. <laughs> <You> know, yes. <laughs> the invisible
2: hand comes to play. <laughs> yeah, 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 he
3: is, like, related, I think, to the Adam Smith. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> or maybe he just says he is. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I, Or maybe he just says he is. <laughs> it's, it's too good of a story. I know. You can't say, D'Angelo. Uh, uh but um <laughs> but but there it's a it's 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 a really important effort um, yeah, and yeah. i hope people will 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 support it and and the idea is yes if we can get two states to do it it goes to the congress then the congress might not approve that but it might be forced to approve the safe banking act yeah, or it yeah, might exactly. be forced to approve even the more act or maybe it'll approve the inner because if it, if it approves the interstate compact, it's really hard to keep this thing Schedule 1 at the same time as approving that. So I'm not sure how the politics would work on the actual approval of the compact, but I think the compact might have a domino effect yeah. um, on the other stuff. So Well, in some
2: respects, this is a great case study of what I think our founding fathers kind of set up or what, what their intention was to setting up kind of states' rights is, you know, the states are kind of these experiments, right? They can they can run different experiments. They can kind of decide on different policies. They can kind of do what they want to do. And as things prove out and as things take hold and get purchased and start to grow, then the federal government kind of comes in and helps standardize and kind of legislate and, you know, make it a more national thing. But I think this is playing out the way that the system was designed at some level. It may not be fast enough and it may not be, there might be a lot of warts on it in terms of how it's playing out. But conceptually, I think, I think there's, what we should be doing, right? We push it at the state level until the federal government has no choice but to, you know, enact something that's going to make this stuff work because the demand is being proven.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that, I think your insight is correct. I would just add that it's sort of a reverse engineering of the founding father's intention because prohibition should have never been able to be um, passed so easy in the first place, of course. So any operating system, including the the one the founding fathers uh, created, which brilliant operating system. And I was I studied the whole constitutional convention yeah. in college. I geeked out on that, and you know I wrote all these plays about reenact what would they think of now? Oh, if they were right. alive? And you know all this stuff. Oh yeah, they were not very good plays, but. Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is why you're a cannabis not not playwright oh no we may still get a play <laughs> one of these days bruce never count the an old plate an old Throwing man it down out. the gauntlet um uh but yeah 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 but i geek out on all that stuff because they even though they were all a bunch of hypocritical slave owners or a lot of them yeah, were, um, yeah. um with the exception of alexander hamilton on my add. um but but at, or Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, mm-hmm. not an abolitionist. But in any case, they created an operating system that's very unique. And, and their big thing was they didn't want tyranny, right? That was an authoritarianism. And we're seeing that even the operating system they created, and it's not just now, it's not just Trump. We've had this problem yeah. with authoritarians taking over the operating system. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had this problem for, you know, various points in the history of the republic so and we've had very contested elections and we've had elections that went to the house of representatives and we've had elections that went to the house of representatives where corrupt shit happened (laughs) (laughs) that caused one candidate to win over the other and so and this is something that's not uncommon we just don't know our own history but I do. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, study. and, you know, and it's something we that want to create positive social change for all people, not just progressive people. We want to create, I want to create positive social change for the most right wing hateful people too. Mm-hmm. I want them to have a cleaner planet too. I yeah. want their kids to be able to Breathe clean air while they hate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do want to eradicate the hatred, too, or at the very least stick it deep, deep back into the closet where it was for a while, at least when I was a kid, and seemed to be um, a lot more than it is now. Although there was plenty of over-racism when I was growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, but there was also um, a lot of shame associated with it. Um, yeah, and yeah. it acted as a control. Yeah, against, yeah it. man, yeah. a control. And we need to remember how social fabri- fabrics work, you know? Yeah. Well, it's clear.
2: I mean, if you look at and not, <laughs> not to make this too political, but it's definitely one, I think one of the biggest dynamics we're going through is a polarization of, you know, of, of everything. Polarization of wealth, of, you know, where people are living, access to housing, like all this stuff is getting so polarized now that hopefully we'll see a turning of, of this trend and
3: Oh, yeah, the plants are coming to the rescue. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The plants are coming to the rescue. One of my favorite Terrence McKenna quotes, if your listeners have never heard of Terrence McKenna, look him up and go get his books. Um, Fascinating, fascinating uh, archaeologist and and thinker of our time. But one of my favorite quotes of Terrence McKenna is, animals were invented by plants to move seeds around. (laughs) I love it. And hopefully the plants are coming to the rescue. You know, yeah. cannabis came to my rescue. Cannabis saved my life and my soul and my thinking and my, huh. I would have been a much different person with a much different life if I did not yeah. encounter this plant and I did not have this this plant in my life on a daily basis. And and you've heard these stories from many, many people. I've heard these stories from many, many people. It doesn't matter if they're physically ill, mentally ill. Or just spiritually or creatively yeah. enhanced, right? Yeah. It really the plants are coming to our rescue, and that's just cannabis. There's a whole bunch of other visionary plants that yeah. are making their move right now.
2: <laughs> they are, yeah,
3: absolutely. <laughs> uh, and so I'm hopeful. That's that I, I put my hope in plants, honestly. Yeah,
2: yeah. let's go. Um, I want to talk about Last Center Project because I think that you know clearly one of the big. Sort of aspects or or facets of being in cannabis and the history of cannabis, you know, is the impact that has had on, you know, particularly the black population, but people of color and the, you know, law enforcement and criminal justice. You know, you've been around for over two years now, I think, in The Last Prisoner Project. I, don't, I can't remember. Exactly. I know we've recently gone through you know a lot of social turmoil and a lot of social focus on on the issue of race and racism. But, but give me a sense of like how have you viewed this? Why The Last Prisoner Project? What has been the focus? What have you been able to achieve? What do you still have yet to do? Give us a little bit of insight there.
3: Sure. The Last Prisoner Project is my favorite thing to talk about the genesis of last prisoner project really comes from my brother and i's experience with the our own experience with the criminal justice system first off my brother mm-hmm. first got busted and locked up for cannabis when he was 18 and i was nine years old and wow. and i had to go visit him i had to go visit him in jail and it was you know it was, a, it was very impactful experience for me mm-hmm. um and you know many years later when we And of course, during our whole cannabis trade, we had lots of people get busted that we had to help over the years with their legal cases or their bail or what have you. And then when we opened Harborside, we we decided to have a program, which is really Steve's vision. Uh, and that program was to, we would give a free gram of medicine to anybody who wrote a letter and started a pen pal relationship with a cannabis prisoner. And so wow. last prisoner project was sort of a continuation of all those experiences and all those things we've done over the years. Uh, and, and, and Steve tells the story better than I can of, of, of the actual moment he got the idea, which was about two and a half, three years ago. And, and it took us, me and my brother about six months to start the organization, recruit a couple people who could run the day-to-day of it, uh, and um, begin to build out the funding and the advisory boards and the board of directors and so forth. And, and yeah, we're about two years old. Now, um, we've only had our nonprofit status a year, so it took us about a year to, to, to get all that organized. And, you know, the mission is very simple. Get every cannabis prisoner freed, expunge their records, and reintegrate them into society with a, a place to live and a job um, being the two primary things that LPP does to assist there's a lot of other mm-hmm. things we we do too with childcare and so forth but those are the two big ones we try to assist with you know there's 40,000 people locked up that we know of that we can yeah. reasonably count very hard to count and that's just in the United States mm-hmm. most of those people are poor black brown immigrant they don't have any kind of criminality or violence associated with their behavior. They simply growing, transporting, or selling cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing, all these legal companies, including mine, Harborside, publicly traded company does, selling you know many hundreds and thousands of pounds per year of cannabis. Mm-hmm. We also grow it. And these folks are in prison for Many years, sometimes life in prison, um, because yeah. they have multiple offenses, multiple cannabis charges over the years. And they have these crazy three strikes laws yeah. and multiple offender laws that add many years, if not life, to somebody's sentence. Uh, so again, LPP is just another way that, that Steve and I tried to go around all the obstacles and do something that really helps. You know, you, you try to get elected officials to do this work. And when they don't or they won't, then you have to do it yourself. And Mm -hmm. that's precisely why we started Last Prisoner Project. I'm happy to report that elected officials are starting to take a little bit more notice and are starting Mm -hmm. to write better laws in terms of expungement once legalization is passed in a particular place. But we can't get retroactive release. Anywhere, We can't get retroactive release. Retroactive release means as soon as someplace legalizes weed, everybody who's in prison for weed gets out. Like mm-hmm. the next day. Not two years later after you go yeah. through petitioning the parole board and this and that and the other. No, like the next day you're out.
2: Yeah. And why? why Get some. I can imagine. But what are your thoughts on why is that? What are the forces at play here? That the elected
3: officials are afraid they'll be perceived as soft on crime if they do that, and they also, you know, law enforcement and prison lobbyists are, are very powerful people in most of the states. And um, they have influence, and, and yeah. they, they make sure that that doesn't happen. So, you know, again, it's complicated, as you said, with cannabis. It's hard to identify one root cause. Um, usually there's more than one root to any plant. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, yeah. and with cannabis, the roots run deep, and, yeah. and it's complicated. But retroactive release is the only moral ground that is worth standing on if you want to call yourselves America. Yeah,
2: yeah. We can't have people making millions of dollars in cannabis businesses and at the same time having people that are incarcerated for, you know, having, having sold small amounts, you know, it just doesn't make sense.
3: Yeah, and until our industry writes that wrong. It's up to the industry, okay? Yeah. It's up to these big companies. And I'm happy to report some of them, not nearly enough, Bruce. Yeah. Okay, yep. so the call is out right here, right now. Big cannabis companies, yep. get on the program, and you don't have to support LPP if you have a problem with, I don't know, with D'Angelo Brothers or whatever, <laughs> that's fine. You can support cage-free cannabis or... All kinds of different organizations are are doing this work and donate to them, support them, plug into them, create a program with them. So that's that's what we need to do because it's not just about getting people out of prison. It's making sure that folks that, you know, my brother got busted and we lost everything. Um, And my parents were in their late 60s when my brother got busted, almost killed them. We had to sell my mother's house that she had lived in for 35 years. Yeah. We had to sell my mother's house and move her out to California and we had to run away from the place we had grown up in our whole lives yeah. um, just to survive that. And and my brother went to jail for a period of time. He got there were some things that happened in his case that that made him a little bit lucky and he was not sentenced to many, 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 many years. Um mm-hmm. and he was able to to avoid that fate. Mm-hmm. Um but we know exactly what that's like, and yeah. and, and there's just two. We, we you know we have a more obligation as an industry to get those folks out and to reintegrate them, give them jobs in our industry. We have you know LPP has this whole reentry training program. We're trying to fund it's you know it's a three hundred fifty thousand dollar program, and and we need a big cannabis company to step up to that. Right now, we're doing smaller versions of it with other mm-hmm. you know smaller. Kind of versions of it, little test projects in various localities. But, you know, just to just to support one prisoner's reentry costs many thousands of dollars per month. They have to have oh, a yeah, partner sure. If they have kids, yeah. the kids have to have child care. They have to have schooling. Um, you know, all these things. You can't just turn these things on when you get out of prison. Yeah, you know, like you can if when you get a new job or something like that.
2: Yeah, no, I'm sure if you've been in prison for any length of time, it's you know, there's the emotional, the practical, the skills that reintegrating society that that is, I'm sure, is not easy. So I think it's a really important work. Yeah, I'll make sure that the links and everything are on the show notes so people can get that information.
3: Yeah, lastprisonerproject.org. If you're a company, you can learn how to plug in. If you're an individual, you can learn how to plug in. You know, you don't have to donate. If you want to start writing to a cannabis prisoner, we make it really easy for you to do on the website.
2: That's awesome. Awesome. Great work! And so, tell us more about what you're doing now. I mean, what's, what's your area of focus? How how are you kind of engaging in the industry, working with folks? Give us some uh, some ideas of what you're what you're working on these days.
3: Well, thanks for asking. It's a little bit confusing because I have <laughs> I've exited Harborside, so I'm no longer running the day the day of Harborside. But my brother Steve is Uh still the executive uh, chairman emeritus of Harborside. So it's a little confusing for the world. But I'm now exited uh, Harborside. Still a big shareholder, still a big co-founder, still Mm -hmm. love Harborside. And, you know, when they knock on my door and ask me to help, I always say yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've divided my post-Harborside work into three areas. One is social justice and last prisoner project. So I spend about 20% of my time on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other is... I work on reducing cannabis stigma in society by being a creative storyteller. So we mentioned earlier that I studied acting in theater or that I tried writing plays when I was a younger man. And I I don't do acting in theater anymore, but I do a lot of writing and thought leadership. I produce films and I hope TV series soon, all reducing... Ah, uh, cannabis stigma and telling stories of cannabis that I hope will create new mythologies for cannabis and pop culture. When I when people think of cannabis right now, they have certain images in their head that are cool, you know, but they're limited and they're stigma. They're stigmatic, you know. Uh, Cheech and Chong's a great image. I love Tommy Chong, love Cheech, love those guys, but. You know, it's a certain image. So, same thing with Cypress Hill or Snoop or those guys, Mm -hmm. a certain type of image. And so, I'm trying to get people like kids with epilepsy, Charlotte Figgy, Jade and David, um, some of these kids with epilepsy, I want them to be in the minds of mainstream America when they think about cannabis. I, I want legacy people, growers, and indigenous folks that have been working with the plant for a long time that have done the heroic work of, of believing in the plant and going to jail for it and all the rest. I want folks to know who those people are too Yeah, and have yeah. their image. And same with all the people of color and all, all, all of that tribe in cannabis who have also carried the plant for a long time. And we've been exposed to that part of the culture through the music, you know, largely, but it's a much bigger world than that. And and so I want to tell those stories too. You know, Corvain Cooper was a prisoner, one of our constituents, he's locked up for life. He was moving weed from California to North Carolina and he had a previous one or two previous convictions and now in North Carolina where he got busted, they threw the book at him and he's in there for life.
2: Really? Oh, God.
3: He's a dynamic leader. I mean, this is a guy, he had a clothing brand. He had the actual, the the clothing brand that he had in L.A., the shop that his brand was in is now a cannabis dispensary, if you can believe that. And this guy's doing life in prison for, for moving some weed. So... That's the kind of, those are the kind of stories that I'm trying to tell in my creative work. So, CBD Nation is a feature film that just dropped recently that people can check out on all the uh, video on demand uh, channels. And then uh, there's another little independent film called Freeland that I was a producer on. My brother's podcast, Radio Free Cannabis, is another area we're starting to share some of these stories. My columns at Playboy.com. Uh, the Weed Warrior Columns is, is another place I'm, I'm starting to tell these stories. So yeah. so uh, that's what I'm doing with creativity. And then, you know, the way I pay for those two things is with strategic advising and consulting of uh, cannabis companies, large and small. It doesn't matter if you're Nike and you want to make a shoe out of hemp, I can help you do that. Or, you know, you're a person of color who's, you know, been thinking about getting in the cannabis industry and maybe you work with the plant in other ways and you want to get legit now I can help I can help folks like that too and and everybody in between I've been doing this so long and you know my journey with Harborside was 14 years I've yeah. seen I've seen it all in a vertically <coughs> rated graded legal cannabis company and I want to help people. What's fun about being a strategic advisor is I can help build the whole industry, not just one company, you know. And so I'm helping companies all throughout the supply chain, all in different states and different countries. And that's a lot of fun for me because um, I, I, I want to work. My ideal clients are folks that look at the cannabis industry as an opportunity to create an industry that has both profit and meaning in it. Um, if all you want to do is global domination and make a ton of money, don't call me.
2: <laughs> yeah, not your client.
3: If you want to do that and get everybody out of prison and create a sustainable world that has a cannabis ecosystem with legacy people and people of color and big companies all working together to create a utopian uh, world, yeah, call me. Yeah, I <laughs> love it. And, and so that's kind of what I'm looking for in
2: terms of clients. That's great. What's the best place to get a hold of you if people are interested in working with you?
3: AndrewD'Angelo.com. You can learn all about my personal story. You can see all my media that I've done, all my podcasts. All the links are there.
2: Awesome. Awesome. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes as well as the other ones we've referenced in the program here so people can click through and get that information. Andrew, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Great conversation. Great story. I really appreciate your time. Thank you,
3: Bruce. It was a lot of fun.